At what point does it become prosecutorial misconduct? I would say on the day she was sworn in. You're listening to Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong. Welcome to episode 193 of the Let Me Tell You Why You're Wrong podcast. I'm Dave Roberts. With me is writer, journalist, owner of the Georgia Virtue, and dog mom, Jessica Salaji. Hey, Dave. How are you feeling? I'm limping along. I had a surgery last week. Uh, I have spent the last seven days within, the, within 100 square feet of my recliner. That's a bummer. Uh, hopefully, it'll, it'll all be better. Hopefully, it'll all be better. But I tell you, my wife has been great. She's been, it sounds like I'm starting off with a Rodney uh, Dangerfield joke. My wife, let me tell you. Uh, no, she's been great. She's been very doting, getting up at three o'clock in the morning to help me uh, get up out of the chair to go to the bathroom, get back in the chair, and uh, making sure that everything's within reach. And went grocery shopping to make sure I had stuff that I could, I could carry. I, I bought pads and a uh, little tote for my crutches. So I have a little tote that I can stick, you know, snacks or, you know, it's made for like a bottle. I, I can go get a bottle of water from the fridge and hobble myself back over to the chair and stuff like that. So she's been, she's been doing a great job. I, I will give her five stars in the, in the wife department. Yeah, How was your well, week? I'm sure she's elated to hear that. Um, <laughs> yeah, consider the source, right? <laughs> yeah. My week's been fine. We're, we're, we're going to talk about most of my week on the show, so I'll reserve my comments until the meet. <laughs> Well, as the show drops, Georgia lawmakers are getting ready to return to the Gold Dome for the redistricting special session. Yeah, that's not good. You know, I wouldn't be so worried about it because obviously this is, they're just redrawing state house and senate and uh, lines and whatnot for based on what came back with the, the census. And we know they're going to gerrymander. We know they're going to mess with things. Um but Kemp added crime to the agenda, what was it, maybe two months ago at this point, um, to address the, the crime surge specifically in Atlanta. And so when you do that, of course, it, I mean, it's supposed to be a special session for redistricting. And of course, the governor can call a special session or add whatever he wants to it, but um, you can't be mad when the other side of the aisle wants to address things that wouldn't normally be on the agenda, like Medicaid expansion. You know, why can't they? This we went through this last year with the COVID relief, or was it two years ago with the uh, uh, with the hurricane relief? Oh, and the Delta tax tax credit. Mm-hmm. What well, I don't understand why they can't come with a special session, singular purpose. Crime's still going to be there in a month and a half. Right. After they, after they get out of, out of session, it's only a month and a half before they go back in regular 2022 session. I, well, and not only that, but Kemp, you know, he he's already budgeted money. They've moved money from around in different state agencies. They're sending troopers to the city of Atlanta to um, help address, and they're doing, like, concerted efforts every single weekend. I constantly see the press releases about it. And then just last week we saw – where Kemp uh, announced that 
um, $110 million from the ARPA funds would be um, allocated to violent crime crackdowns and addressing the judicial case backlog, which, you know, as I said, I'll, uh, during last session, last summer, this session, and, and for the last 20 months, like, if anyone gave a damn about justice and, and the backlog, they never would have allowed the courts to shudder in the first place. And we certainly wouldn't have allowed the legislature to um, codify the suspension of speedy trials um, due to COVID and Kemp wouldn't have signed it and blah, blah, blah. But at least we're going to throw money at it after the fact. So, but I well, say I'm, 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 I'm down I've got a, a cure hole. for this. I mean, this is a really super easy bill. We're going we're gonna to focus on violent crime. We're going to focus on crime with victims and if a crime doesn't have a victim, it's not a crime. Well, I mean, easy enough. There goes no, the backlog. No, 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 no. Because the problem with that is that, I mean, first you'd have to specify that the victim is uh, an individual that is, you know, with a set social security number or some sort of identifying number because the state considers itself the victim in most of these cases. And, and in fact, like, even when there is a victim, I mean, the state isn't representing the victim. They, quote, represent the laws of the state. So your legislation is not sufficient. You've got to repeal all those laws. Right. I'm okay with it. Well, me too. But, I mean, here we sit, and, and we're down a rabbit hole from the purpose. But what I'm, what I'm getting at is, like, you know, for the last four or five months, crime has been a huge topic. And, and um, well, crime in Atlanta has been a huge topic. And... Um, Kemp has made it a point of his to step in where he feels like Keisha Bottoms is not, and we're all going to have to pay for it. And, and adding it to the agenda is a political move that has nothing to do with cracking down on crime. And what I found most laughable about all of it is that they added, um, money. So some for the judicial backlog, they're adding money for prosecutors to hire, to bring in special prosecutors to, you know, move stuff along. And then they're also going to give money to the Public Defenders Council. And we know that um, we don't know how much money is going where yet, but I swear to goodness, if it's not the same for public defenders versus prosecutors, like, we'll be talking about this again on the show. But... Uh, we've talked so we'll be length. talking about we've, this again on the show. Right. And we've talked at <laughs> length about how the, the legislature continues to slash public defender's budget. Like, maybe if you hadn't... First of all, the problem is not that people don't have an attorney. Like, yes, they're overwhelmed, and yes, they can always use more money, and I'm I'm certainly not... They do a very important job. I am not saying that they're not deserving, but, like, let's not put the blame on them. <laughs> the blame is on the, the district attorneys and prosecutors who sat on the... <laughs> for the entire term of COVID while the courts were shuttered and didn't do anything and didn't prep cases and make deals and do all the things so that when the courts opened, they were ready to hit the ground running. They didn't do that. So, you know, all everything that we're facing is preventable, but we're going to throw $110 million from the federal government at it and say, we're tough on crime as if that's ever been the solution. Well, back on redistricting, I, I heard on the congressional side, they're going to give Lucy McBath uh, her entire state of Tennessee. Mm. Ah. Did you hear they sent her a package at her house? Again? No, this was this was a while ago. When she had, I guess, when she got elected, they sent her a "Welcome to Georgia" package and had her sign for it on her front step in Tennessee and in, in uh, Knoxville or whatever it was. Yeah, I did hear about that. I'm I'm pretty sure I wrote the story. 
Oh, did you? Yes. I wouldn't know. I, I, I never trust. I never trust writers. Yeah, I know. I hear you. You have to be skeptical. But I am. I think I'm the only one who wrote the story for like several weeks, and then finally they had to acknowledge that no, she does not live in Georgia. So current estimates suggest that the state Senate will lose uh, one out of 56 seats to or that the uh, rural metro rural area of Georgia will lose one out of 56 seats to the metro region and uh, four of the 180 House seats, which is terrible news. Absolutely terrible. Um, I mean, it's going to be and not like we couldn't see this coming down the pipeline like nobody's business, but it will be terrible when Metro Atlanta can controls more of um the legislative seats whether it doesn't matter what side they're on because they all play together but um rural georgia needs representation i mean and we don't have it right now i mean half the people we have that are here are doing a job well half of them are are slaves to the to lumber industry especially down there or big ag because that's that's where the money is so, speaking of being slaves to Satanists, convinced Delaware County, Pennsylvania school district to alter dress code uh, for children uh, attending schools within the Rose Tree Media School District. Joseph Rose, the founder of a local organization called Satanic Delco, says fellow Satanists within the school district made him aware of the verbiage. In the dress code, banning any cl- color, clothing, or gear that are satanistic or satanic in nature. What do you define as satanic in nature? Like, if you heard that, what would you... I assume it's going to be pentagrams and things like that. Uh, anything Black Sabbath that they put out. I mean, lots of bands have put out stuff with, uh, with uh, uh, pentagrams on it and, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. The quote is, the idea that a public school would allow religious expression in school but choose to single out and prohibit the expression of one specific religion obviously seemed like a problem for us. I mean, are we going to pretend that, like, it was... I mean, having this conversation about all this is far more distracting to the school day than just letting kids wear, you know... like right. People always want to pretend like this stuff is so, like dress code is so important and so distracting. And if they don't do X, Y, and Z, then it's just dangerous. And it's not really the case. And look, like I said, it, half half the heavy metal bands out there put stuff out that someone would consider satanic. And of course, it was an attention thing. It's a, it's a show thing. I don't care if it's, you know, Black Sabbath or... Um, half, half the other, you know, slash metal bands and and that kind of stuff. And it's sort of a counterculture thing. I don't even think it's a, for most of the kids that are wearing this stuff, it's not a religious thing. It's a counterculture thing. It's, they're girls that we all went to school with that went through a Wiccan phase. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, it seems like a, a, a pointless conversation to have. It does. I mean... The thing is, is the more, it's just like anything else, the more restrictions you have, the more students, especially in middle and high school, like the more they're going to try to push the limits because that's just what kids at that age are doing. I mean. Right. 
But it, it, it took about a month of consistent emails and phone calls to the district to the district before superintendent sent out an announcement reading in part. Although we have no complaints or concerns brought forward by any student, parent, or resident, we will remove this language from our current dress code information in the student handbook. I guess that's that's fair enough. Yeah. That's kind of a. It's, I'm fine with that punt. Let, let, let's get on educating the kids. I don't care. He obviously just doesn't want the the school district going to the Supreme Court on a First Amendment issue and all that stuff. Just fine. Where the hell you want? Just you know. Well, I mean, it does get into the it does get into an issue when you say they can't and and you let somebody wear a t-shirt that says you know a bible verse or something i mean sure and here's a quote it's a free speech issue are they going yeah, to this allow this woman's an idiot this woman's yeah. an idiot it's like a free speech speech issue are they going to allow nazis to be able to uh put symbols on kids shirts and send them to school donna willis of media first of all donna I mean, people can wear Nazi stuff like anywhere they want. That's going to be a reflection on them. <laughs> like, uh, we can't control everything. Right. And Nazism is not a religion. No. And, I mean, and, and the hate symbol. Oh, he, technically, he, you could go on the aspect of that it's a gang because of white supremacy and stuff. I mean, like, there's so much more to it than free speech with the Nazi part. Well, we also know that Supreme Court has held up that within school, students don't have all their constitutional rights. They're, they can they can be somewhat curbed. Which is and why Nazism, you shouldn't send your children to public school. Right. Nazism is not a religion, number one. Uh, number two, it's a political symbol. And schools have consistently been allowed to curb political sim- symbols. Uh It'd be like where I guess kids do wear in certain public high schools a hammer and sickle or Shea t-shirts. There's not a whole lot of difference between Shea Guevara and uh, and Nazism. It's just their ideology is different, not not their method is not not their method methodology. Sorry, I'm still on pills. <laughs> <laughs> Call this one the heroin diaries. So yeah, it, it, I think the school district had a rather reasonable response to this, which was fine. Whatever. That's religion. Whatever you want to do. Whatever. Just show up to school so we can get our check for having kids, for having cheeks in the seats. Right. So Netflix, of all companies, is citing the First Amendment as defense to a lawsuit by a family who claims the company is to blame for their teenager who committed suicide. Yeah. You knew this was going to happen when 13 Reasons Why came out. Um, I only watched the first season which, you know, was upsetting and sad, and I think it shed a lot of light on um, suicide and the things that lead up to it and the things that can contribute and, like, the warning signs and stuff. And I don't – so I don't know what happened in the following seasons. I can't speak to that. But um, my first – first of all, so I think the show was very well done. It was very tasteful. It was not – I don't know. It, it wasn't reckless, but my first response would be, well, if you're a teenager, 
as a minor, then you should maybe have had more control over what they watched. I mean, like you're the blame falls on you. I, if you were, if you're going to blame somebody, which we don't, we try not to blame people for suicide, but if you're going to, if you're, if the buck stops with your house and your television and your subscriptions, like, why are you blaming the company? Yeah. They're being sued by a grieving father of a teenager, uh, who alleged that, uh, uh, who alleges that Netflix, the next Netflix show, 13 Reasons Why, inspired his daughter to commit suicide. Netflix counters that the suit infringes on his freedom of speech, arguing that its algorithmic algorithmic content, content recommends a recommendation is provi- protected by the First Amendment. Well, that's interesting that he's going after the rec- recommendation that she watch it. Well... Because it popped up in the algorithm, but at the same time, I mean, if a lot of the algorithm is based on what you've watched before. Um, you know, if you watch documentaries or if you watch a lot of movies or true crime or whatever it is, I mean, it's based on. I'm. Ass- I, I, I know you should never assume, but I'm assuming that this wasn't just like her his first the first day of having Netflix and it would just popped up. Yeah. Well, I can tell you it's never popped up in my recommendations. Mm-hmm. And it, it popped up could... in mine. Right. Cause I, I don't watch a lot of true crime stuff. And, and like, like you said, my, my Netflix uh, is probably much different from yours. And it says that they um, claim that Netflix didn't like vulnerable viewers were not adequately shielded from or warned about the show's highly graphic and suggestive content. Okay. Well, first of all, how the F is Netflix supposed to know if someone is a vulnerable viewer? Second, again, like they give you opportunities. Netflix allows you to have multiple accounts in your users so that you can set restrictions. You can block whatever movies you want. This movie, this, this series, it was like several episodes, um, possibly 13. I can't remember. Um, but it, it, it got national attention and headlines. It was all in the news because of the subject matter and before it was even released. And then of course, again, when it was released and so you could have blocked that specific show or you could have blocked the subject matter, but each show also said like, if you are subject to X, Y, and Z and you, you know, and here's the national suicide hotline and like, what more do you want this company to do? Not just that. This, this, it, I, I, I feel for this father, and, and again, I don't outright blame grieving families for for lashing out. As it's part of the grieving process. Is uh, it that? It really is that you want to blame somebody. You want to blame somebody else. It couldn't possibly have been her and and her and she had problems. It has to be has to be other kids at school. Has to be Netflix. Has to be somebody else. It certainly can't be, you know. It, it can't be something that was happening at home. It can't be something that I missed. I mean, would they have blamed? Would they have blamed Netflix if she watched a um, series on teen pregnancy and the the teens were able to, you know, still go to college and and have successful lives after the fact? And so. And so she I got think there was with uh, uh, teen mom. Yeah, teen mom and stuff like that. That it kind of, there was an accusation that it glorified teen pregnancy and and things like that. I don't know. If there were lawsuits to go with it, 
but there certainly was a push in in the in the you know blogosphere and and things like that that this is glorifying teen pregnancy and and things like that this this girl obviously had some problems that she needed help with that were missed either by her friends her family her uh, other adults in her in her orbit that they missed that they just took for normal teen angst and again i don't i don't know how you tell the difference between normal teenage angst and depression and leave me alone dad and things like that that they're just completely normal for you know a, a teenager uh, particularly girls that, that tend to mope because you know teenage girls are awful to each other well, these teenage boys just beat each other up and then we're fine uh, it's normal sort of growing pains that they go along with with puberty and coming of age and all that stuff and a kid that really has problems and is thinking about committing suicide I don't know how you tell the difference of course I'm not a, a mental health professional but you know how do you tell you're not just overreacting and and putting a kid through therapy and things that doesn't necessarily need it I don't know but Netflix sure as hell doesn't know. No. And how could they? And they shouldn't. I mean, and you know what? How does, how does this family know that the movie didn't or the series didn't raise awareness for some other families and save some lives or get people some help that they needed or they saw the aftermath of suicide and so it kept some others from doing it because they, I mean, like for every horrible story, there's a good story that's just reality of these types of things. And I don't think that's the company re- that's should a, be punished That's a really good point. Is there's, it's very easy to track the number of suicides. There's no way to track suicides that never happened. That maybe watching this series for, for some kid, it saw that, saw that suicide prevention hotline and called it. And said, I want to talk to somebody. You never know. And and not that it's any of our business, but this family's uh, viewpoints is uh, is very short-sighted. And, of course, they're citing, the company is citing the anti-slap statute, which we have here in Georgia, um, that Georgia Democrats actually tried to repeal several years ago. And we've talked about it on the show, but B.J. Pack is the one who went to the well in the legislature and, like, vehemently opposed it and did a stand-up job of advocating for um the provisions in in the law that allow dismissal of complaints that are about protected speech, which, you know, the whole argument here is that the algorithm is is protected speech. But it it is. I mean, the company, if the company, how the company chooses to promote something. Is, right. It, how it, they it, seek to get viewers is, is protected. Somebody else should not be allowed to control that. You are in control of your own television. You'd have to demonstrate to me the algorithm that shows, okay, this is an at-risk teen. They are definitely going to watch this show. Put it in front of them. Uh, The plaintiffs in the case are John uh, Herndon, his sons, and the estate of Herndon's daughter, Isabella, whose suicide was allegedly precipitated by watching 13 Reasons Why, they allege that vulnerable viewers were not adequately shielded, like you said, from from or warned about the show's highly graphic and suggestive content. It just 
I don't know. And I, I've never seen the show. Doesn't sound like something I want to watch. Uh, cause it doesn't sound very entertaining to me, but I, you said they, they showed the prevention hotline on there when the show would come on. Well, I think it was at the end of the show, like, but, or, and maybe it was in the beginning on some of them. I'm not really sure, but I do recall, you know, those, the prevention and, and like, you know, just certain resources that they did make available. And so I, I mean, think it's, what do they want? Like, hey, I'm TV's James Vanderbeek. Actually, mm-hmm. I recall at the end too. There was like a, a at the end of the thing, like there was an entire like roundtable discussion about it, about suicide and the impacts of it and the warning signs. I mean, like the entire premise was education, not educating people how to commit suicide, but what types of events happen to teenagers that push them to do these types of things that sure. that maybe you know i mean between cuz we they do as much as, as much grief as we give generations after us it would have been terrible to go through middle school and high school in the social media era it was snapchat and the way things are are these days where something you know when we had somebody bully us at school or get in a fight or there was something embarrassing happen the next day you went back and it was a lot of times over on you also internet, went home. You know, you went home and you're in a I safe mean. space. Uh, it, on the internet, yeah, you don't have that. Right. It, it, it's there around you all the time. And look, I, I certainly empathize with the... I, I, there's so many reasons I'm glad that I was young before the internet. Uh, there's no photographic evidence of me being an idiot. Well, there's less photographic evidence of me being an idiot. Right. There's a couple hundred shows of me sounding like an idiot right here. But I I, I don't think that I, I it sounds like the the show's intent was to was to show the aftermath of of what's left in in the wake. Mhm. And that's and that's what it sounds like it had decent intentions. But again, this is a grieving family, and the lawyer that took this up is profiting off of it. Mm-hmm. This isn't, I, 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 I can't speak to because I don't know the attorney specifically, but it sounds to me like this is an attorney that is more interested in profiting from it than, than actually preventing future suicides. Well, this, is an op- this is an opportunity to make money. In the courts have repeatedly said that the words and depictions within a product or the way that you promote a product are that's not subject to liability law you know this isn't like getting a um a hot coffee or you know a, a car blowing up like very very difficult to show causation between watching something and doing an action. Very, very difficult. This is not and the ring. You'd end up with... If, if this if this were to go through, which I really don't think it is, but um, if this were to become a thing or this, you know, they would be... The family was successful. The number of disclaimers... I mean, you'd have a scroll at the bottom of your movies running across the entire time to try to cover their ass on everything. Right. 
Look, it's I like, I, totally I watched Superman as a kid. I didn't go leaping off of tall buildings. It's it's a documentary, and, and again, this this goes back to taking parental responsibility. And I've said it a hundred times. Uh, I've got a friend. You know, we had that foot of snow here. School was in session that morning. He looked at the weather. He looked outside. He told his kids, you're not going to school today. Stay home. Because he didn't depend on somebody else to raise his kids. He said, this doesn't look good. You're staying home. Because mm-hmm. he took responsibility for his own kids. Now, is he is this guy responsible for, for his daughter killing herself? Of course not. But trying to put blame on somebody else is, again, natural for him to feel that way. It's just kind of a, it feels like a scumbag thing to take advantage of this family to, to give credence to that. What this guy, what they need is counseling and they, and they need a, a family counselor and her brothers and father probably independently need therapy to, to deal with it because it's difficult. It, it's unnatural to bury one, a child to your own child. And that's what, that's what th- these folks need to be focused on is, is getting themselves well, not pointing fingers. And because even if Netflix writes him a $10 million check to make him go away, he's not going to feel any better. Mm-mm. And the only person to make any money on that would be the damn lawyer. And nobody else is, no, no lives will be saved from that. I mean. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. And teen suicide is not new. We're hearing about it more because the social media is not new. Uh, I'm sure you had you had somebody off themselves when you were in school. I certainly did. Uh, I this, actually this, didn't. You didn't? No. My first experience, so when I was in third grade, we had a swim coach that um, took her own life. But I was, I didn't really understand like what that, I mean, I did understand, but not, you know, your third grade, like there's only so much you can, but I really was shielded from suicide quite a bit until um, college. Huh. So I was lucky. You were. You were. This is a good time to remind you that these are our opinions and not those of anyone, not on the show or any respective company for which we may work, own, or otherwise associate ourselves with on a regular or irregular basis. Also, you can find other episodes and relevant stories over at thegeorgiavirtue.com. Speaking of the First Amendment, winner, winner, chicken dinner, Jessica? (laughs) So most people who listen have probably already heard, but it's still worth mentioning that um, the federal lawsuit that I filed against Van Johnson last July was resolved last week. Um, a it was a settlement. Obviously, it didn't like go to court because which I'd never really figured it would. But um, there was a settlement agreement signed, which basically um, I agreed to drop the suit. Um, based on the fact that a judge signed an order permanently prohibiting him from banning people, censoring people um, based on their viewpoints. Because um, if you recall, over the last two years, when he was an alderman and since his tenure in office as mayor, um, Van Johnson has made it a point to um, delete, block, all that stuff people on his social media accounts um, when they offer an opinion or a statement that differs from his. Um, And what's worse is that, so like 
the reason that I took this as far as I did is because he blocked me from all of his stuff and it limited what I could see on his official pages. And then, of course, I still kept like ranting about him on my own page and he would come comment as his official page on my page, but I could never respond to him because like the way that Facebook has everything set up when it's not a personal page, but it's a public page. Like I could see his comments on my page, but I couldn't reply to them. So he was like peeing in my yard, basically, even when he wouldn't let me, but wouldn't let me go in his yard. And he's, his yard is on public property is what it came down to. So anyway, Judge William T. Moore um, of the Southern District of Georgia signed the order on October 25th and forever and definitely not just me. um, He is permanently prohibited from um, censoring anyone, especially on their viewpoint. Um, but the only other only time is which the courts have allowed is um, like if you're abusive. unnecessarily yeah, abusive or like spamming or um, using inappropriate language to, where it's not relevant or within quotes or whatever the case may be. So it's a win for, well, I consider it a win. Um, Technically, I can't say that I won the lawsuit, but I think that it's a win for the First Amendment. Um, And it's not just for me, it's for everybody. And the most hilarious part about all of it is that on Monday and Tuesday, of course, like my friends were commenting all over his page saying, you know, are you going to bring up your your lawsuit about the First Amendment in your state of the city? Are you going to do this? Are you going to talk about it? Are you going to make a statement? Because he called me a troll for filing this lawsuit and he kept saying that he was not going to bring it up or he was first he was deleting comments which I'm like dude like have you learned nothing but second um he said he didn't lose like that there was no loss that it was the order with the case was dismissed well sure buddy the case was dismissed because a judge said you can never do that again to anyone <laughs> like that's not a win for you it might not be a win for me but it's certainly not a win for him he immediately went in, or his staff would have started deleting comments. What a jackass. Would that not be contempt of court? Mm. I mean, you were just got an order not to do that. Just got, besides the fact that it was illegal to begin with. This isn't like the judge was making new law here. All he did was, yes, say, yes, Mayor Johnson, you have to obey the law. You're doing okay. I guess so. I thought I was a law in Savannah. Well, if you recall that, you know, I wasn't the only one who filed a lawsuit. My our friend of the show, Neil Singleton, filed one as well. And he didn't he represented himself and his the city attorneys for the city of Savannah really like pushed him around a lot and um, just had his case dismissed and which is really easy to do in federal court. Um, But I say all that to say they told him. And they told in the press conference that our rights basically stop in, when we go into Savannah, like that we had no standing to make these claims um, because we didn't live there. And which I was unaware that constitutional rights varied by municipality. Only in Savannah. Mm-hmm. Whereas an alderman, Johnson wanted to supersede state law and prohibit carrying firearms in parks or in public. He really has a has a 
complex. He really does. I he was a, he was elected mayor, but he really thinks he's you know you know a dictator that he is he is the supreme leader. Yeah, he sucks, and he's always going to suck, and he's always going to think that um, he is above all of us. However, it brought me so much joy. I mean, sure, would I have loved for like there to be some sort of court proceeding and and to be declared like the actual victor? Yeah, of course. I'd like to drag his dumb ass to the stand. Yeah, but the fact that the I mean the order is there, like he can't he can't refute that. He can he can say all day long that he didn't lose, there was no loss. He's like everything's great here in Savannah. Well, yeah. You're a loser. <laughs> yeah, I do like the note. Van Johnson is a loser. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the type of people who want to block people who have different viewpoints from them anyway don't belong in elected office. Micah. Or in society. Or in society. Society. So, Jessica, how was your week? Well, so I, Eric and I covered a, a trial. It was at, in Bullitt County. Um, we, I think we've mentioned part of it on the show a couple months ago, but basically there's um, two brothers who were charged with some hefty sex crimes here in Bullitt County. They are named DJ, or they are named DJ and Vincent Saldano. And the allegations... Um, stemmed from two female victims who alleged some inappropriate touching occurred at a tattoo shop and as well and one of the um females alleged that there was an uh, a sexual assault and a rape and so um in march well i'm getting ahead of myself so basically they, they accused them of um these things back supposedly occurred in 2017. Um, one of them did. And then one of them occurred in 2019 and one of the brothers was arrested. Um, after the report was made, he spent, it was, and what's nuts is that when it was two years prior. Um, and then the other brother was arrested following, well, he turned himself in after the grand jury, um, indicted him on aggravated sexual battery charges. So they were both arrested in 2019. They were both repeatedly denied bond. Um, They sat in jail for, at the start of the trial, they were both in there for um, over 700 days. DJ Saldano had been behind bars for 780 days, which is just mind-blowing. But um, the, the... What's frustrating, and we kind of talked about it a little bit before the show, but what's frustrating is, you know, I think there's a difference between, you know, when when someone is accused of rape, rape is the sexual intercourse without consent with force. And so it's it's hard to make the claim that someone should not be granted a bond when even the victims alleged victims, accusers, however you're going to call them, when they don't allege violence. Or force. 
Right. They're, yeah, they're, they're, they're no I gun, mean, they, no knife, they did nothing a, held down. They did allege force because they said they were forced to do these things, but, you know, there was no weapon. There was no... The, the acts were not inherently violent. And so, you know, that's what we're told that, that you know, being held without bond is supposed to be reserved for the most egregious crimes, people who are too dangerous to be released, who we don't trust to be released. I don't understand why these guys could have been could not have been sent home with, you know, an ankle monitor and um, some frequent check-ins and at least be allowed to work and take care of their families and everything else. But anyway, um, so there were two accusers, um, and one of them was, her case was tried against, solely against DJ Saldano um, in March of this year, went to trial. And um, this, in this case, she supposedly had video evidence where she recorded it on her cell phone of him sliding his fingers in her underwear and doing inappropriate things. And they played the video for the, well, the state played the video and they slowed it down to like second by second um, frames to make it look like it took longer than it did. But when the defense played it at the normal speed, it was you know, using the, um, the pit, whatever, whatever, what is it called? Like, what is the tool they use called? A, a tattoo gun. Okay. So you could see that he was, it was moving more quickly or anyway. So anyway, there was a hung jury. They could not come to a consensus. Don't know how many jurors one way or the other, but they deliberated for quite a while and couldn't reach an agreement. So there was a hung jury and Daphne so, Totten. So on, on this one, this is not somebody who's getting a tattoo on her arm, and he he went for her panties. I'm not sure where her tattoo was. On this I, I think when I when I read it, she was getting a tattoo on her hip and thigh. No, no, is, that's is that, a different. A different. That's woman. different. I don't I don't know where her tattoo was, but it doesn't matter because the jury, you know, wasn't convinced. Right. In my opinion, too. I mean, there's people who would disagree with this, but in my opinion, a a hung jury is just as bad for the def- or the prosecutor as a not guilty because the burden is 100% on you and you failed to make your case. So, you know, you either better have some new evidence or a new witness or a new approach when you come back the second time because I don't think a new jury is going to be good enough. But because, you know, they are, if there's a hung jury, they are allowed to try again. So right. um, at this time when they had the hung jury, they asked for bond again. The judge said no. Um, and Daphne Totten said, well, I reserve the right to try this case again. The brother who was accused as well, Vinny, he was scheduled to go to trial two or three weeks later um, after the hung jury for the other accuser. And the that happened on a Friday. The hung jury came back. And on Monday, um, Daphne Totten took the case back to the grand jury and indicted them as co-defendants so that the victim the alleged victims in each case could um, accuse or, you know, be like used against one another. And so instead of each being charged individually, they were both charged with three aggravated sexual battery, aggravated sodomy and rape, even though they were not present for one another's accused um, incidents, alleged incidents, which is freaking insane to think about. Like, yes, they happened at the tattoo shop, but, like even the victims in their testimony said he wasn't there. So 
she reindicts them as co-defendants so she can use all the evidence against one another. And this the the defense attorneys file these motions saying that what the prosecutor is trying to do is vindictive, that it's not productive, that it's totally she's doing it because she lost the other case and, you know, overlapping them instead of facing one life sentence each, they're both facing three life sentences. And they called on the state to prove that what they were doing was not vindictive and that it was actually justifiable. And of course, the, they said, oh, we're just trying to be efficient by trying them together. And the judge, who is a former prosecutor himself, sided with them and said there was no vic- uh, evidence of vindictiveness. So we move forward to trial, which brings us to last week with me and Eric. And we traded off um, attending and we heard from the accuser. We heard from the accuser in the case in the other trial, although... They were allowed to consider it, but they weren't on trial for those charges, which is like a wild concept, too. Like, he was, it was a hung jury. There was no conviction on the other claim. There was, I mean, they're not trying him for it right now, but you're allowed to listen to her testimony. It's very odd, very totally inappropriate, but in my opinion, but they didn't ask me. So anyway... They presented the, the the accuser. She testified that DJ Saldano like slid his fingers inside her underwear and and touched her her genitals while she was getting a tattoo on her thigh and hip. Like it went all the way from just above her knee all the way up her hip, and then it was a dream catcher, so it kind of like went backwards on her behind. She said that she was there several. Well, <laughs> the this woman said that she was there. Three and a half hours and and that she was assaulted during that period and and never she never said stop. She never said don't do that. She never tried to leave. She let him finish the tattoo. So and then she came back a second time. The other woman who accused these men said that um, she was touched inappropriately and that after she had her tattoo done, she was forced to perform oral sex on DJ Saldano. And that then the other brother came in and when he was finished and took her upstairs and briefly performed oral sex on her and then sexually assaulted her and raped her and then sent her on her way. During the time that this accuser who alleged the rape and everything while it was there, there were so... The brothers were there, a female employee was there, and another tattoo artist was there. They said they didn't hear anything out of the ordinary. And the defense or the prosecutor tried to, like, make it seem like they were just testifying to these things because they their paychecks were paid by the Saldanos and they're friends with them. Well, the one guy now works for, his, for himself. Like, he split off from them during all this because their business went to hell in handbasket. And the woman who worked there with that as a body piercer was fired by them and still testified to all this. Somebody with, with every axe to grind in the world. Right. Like, was even cut off. She even testified that she was, like, cut off briefly from the family. Like, had no interaction with any of them because it didn't end well. And, um, and, and it was... but. But she didn't hear anyone getting raped, and she didn't hear anybody saying no, and she didn't hear anybody being forced. To, and it's a very small building. I think I think they said the area that all this took place was like 760 square feet, which is like the size of a small one-bedroom apartment. Like, that's not a lot of space at all. And she said that her – she said everything would have been an earshot, and she would have heard if there was some sort of 
struggle and the the accuser testified that she never she also never said no that there was no force they asked her what the force was that was used against her and she said that his body was on top of hers when they asked her how her mouth was forced open she said it wasn't and she said that they had made out prior, like just before that like just all these things that you're just sitting there wondering how the heck something like this like i understand if a report is made that the police have an obligation to take a report and investigate. That is understood. I don't blame them. But how do you get this far? How do you take this to trial other than being vindictive because you lost the first time? How, how do you explain this? Like, it, and she said, she signed, one of the girl, the accuser in this case signed a waiver of prosecution back in 2017 because she stated that she was worried about the stigma of rape and she didn't think there would be anything to go on other than her word against his and we found out during cross-examination all these things that basically she was her I guess her stepfather or something was a Baptist preacher and she had done all this stuff at the tattoo shop and then gone home taken a shower went to Walmart went to Bible study and then went to this local restaurant slash bar with the friend from Bible study and told her what happened and then the friend told her to go file a report and she did and that's how we got where we are. Um, it's it's mind blowing that no, it, it's as terrifying as a guy, right? I mean, it, first of all, these guys were were in jail for years, two in over jail. two years, yeah, for years, lost everything, lost their business. One of them oh. is a dad of two children. Um, and who are in like elementary school who have been, you know, and, and, and also think about the fact that we're living in the COVID era where there's no visitation. Um, you can't see people. You can't, you can't have that human contact the way that you, you know, at least the face to face conversations, all that. Um, it was so the trial was supposed to last five days and it, um, they were done about four they were done about 3.30 on Tuesday, actually. And so they did the closing statements, the jury charges, all that. And the jury went back and deliberated for about an hour and 10 minutes and um, came back with not guilty on all counts. And Eric and I were both there. The courtroom had a couple other attorneys in it. And um, obviously the accusers, both females were there and some other people for them. But it was very emotional to see these grown men and their family members just sobbing with relief when it was over um and the not guilty verdicts had been read i mean it was like i mean it it was it was very it was hard to watch and then their attorney got very emotional after everything and um i actually got to talk to a couple of jurors in the parking lot when i left and they were all three um men there were a lot of men on the jury but they all said, you know, if these things did happen, the state didn't show us anything, not a single thing to, to prove it. Nothing. So, right. I mean, you sit I, here and you're like, well, that's great that they're not guilty because they're, you cannot put a price on your freedom. Sure. I mean, that's fantastic. Like, it's the outcome that their entire family wanted. That is the obvious. Even again, if it if it did happen, like you, you can't prove it. That's a travesty. That's, that's a tragedy. But that's that's the reality of it. And so it was the rightful outcome, no matter what. And 
you're still looking at men who lost their entire lives, who lost their livelihood, who still have news articles. I'm the only person who has reported that they were found not guilty. Even our local paper didn't report that two men accused of rape were found not guilty. So you you Google them and it's their mug shots and, and the articles about them being arrested and what they supposedly did. And the Facebook searches are all about the accusers. And and the element that I kind of I kind of skipped over was that, you know, there was a... a a narrative presented by the defense that some of this had to do with a estranged former business partner who went off and started her own tattoo shop in town. And that when, um, that she was kind of behind all of this in some way, or that there was some connection to that. And they didn't go too deep into it, but it was an element of it. And that seemed to resonate with the jurors too, that, you know, these things allegedly happened that these people didn't have their tattoos stopped. They kept on. They sat there. I mean, a 33-year-old woman said she sat there for three and a half hours while a man touched her inappropriately and she didn't do anything. Um, if if some if that was me, I don't have any tattoos, but if somebody started touching me inappropriately while I was having a tattoo, I would kick him in the face and leave. Right. And then tell everybody about it yeah. immediately. Yeah, it's uh, it all. It, thank God for those for those twelve people in that jury because it, it it doesn't sound plausible. I mean, it's it all for the, for the rest of their lives, especially with with their names being as unique as they are. Mm-hmm. It will follow them forever. I mean, could could these guys even get a job as a tattoo artist? Not here. I mean, anywhere. Move, move to to Oregon. As soon as you, as soon as you look up their names, that's what you're gonna find. Yeah. And that I mean, that that shop owners be like, hey man, you may be a great artist, and I and I feel for you, but I can't have that liability. Sure. Well, and I mean, their business was still intact. They still had the building and everything until the week of the trial. They lost it. Um, which is unfortunate too, because I mean, they, one of the accusers, um, was after she was her three and a half hour visit, she posed for several photos of them for them to post on their Facebook and to put in their, their books. And they're very talented. I mean, it's, it's art. Sure it is. Um, but that's lost. And let's not talk about so the so DJ you know he had the um the hung jury in March and he had a he had a private attorney then and it was very very expensive and when they found out they were gonna have to go again he had to go with the public defender which you know they they kicked some serious ass but they already he'd exhausted his resources in that sense and um, Vinny had a private attorney this time because it was his first trial but the amount of legal fees and you know, I know that I've seen so many stories about and, and interviews with people who either were wrongly accused or wrongly convicted. And then when they get out, they're just gracious and grateful and they hate the system, but they don't dedicate a lot of their energy to it. They just are so, um, I guess, relieved to be moving forward. But I, I think that people with that mindset are remarkable because I would be pissed. Oh yeah, so would I. And you have a note here: the evisceration of the DA. <clears throat> yeah, I uh, unleashed on Daphne Totten again. 
But I unleashed on her after this. I, I honestly, I did it Tuesday night after the verdict came back before I even reported the whole um, case coverage because this is the third rape trial this year in Bullock County where the evidence did not support the charges and it could have been prevented. And the other one was the Matthew Chalkley case, which we talked about on the show, where the guy spent 39 months in prison, I mean, in jail for after he was accused of rape. And he took a girl home from a bar. They had sex. They She woke up in the morning, used his phone, went back to bed, woke up again at like noon, used his phone again, and they hung out and talked for a little bit. And then he drove her home. She gave him her phone number. And then she went and filed charges against him for rape. And they, I mean, and he spent all the time without bond again, like, and, and all of that falls on the DA. And she's making more victims. She's, she's, she's harming victims who, she's harming real victims or victims who have the evidence, but people don't care to listen because they just think there's so many false accusations out there or regretful stories that are rooted in regret. And then she's making more victims out of the system by arguing against Bond and pushing these cases to trial when it is someone's word against another word. And at what point does it become prosecutorial misconduct? Because I would the, say on the, the day she was case, sworn in. Yeah, on the Chuckley case, this is the one that not only did he drive them home from the bar, but she chased him down in the parking lot of of their. Of, of their uh, apartment complex or a friend's apartment complex because she thought she lost him. Yeah, she she was outside of his house and, and, and stopped and talked to his roommate's wife or something like that and was like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? And she sent him inside. Like, she was up and walking and they tried to make the comment that she was blacked out and passed out. And Well, then, I mean, then you say she made two phone calls, went back to bed with him. In the morning when she was sober. Yeah. And that's not exculpatory evidence. That I mean, regret is not rape. If that's the case, I've I've got almost twenty years experience with my wife having to come back to bed with me, and I'm sure she regrets every year of it. Mm-hmm. Good God! It's terrible. Jessica, as as we're running long, do you have any uh, closing thoughts? Maybe on your jail numbers. Oh, yeah. So I, I just ran a couple of numbers. The conversation this week has been a lot about, like, you know, is there restitution for these types of things? and Or, you know, how long can someone wait? Um, and is there a maximum? And the answer is no. And I would just implore people to, like, look at their own jail. Like, a lot of times you can look at the database online of who's incarcerated. Because in Bullock County, where we're not really that large of a county in the scheme of things, um, we've got 82 people who have been sitting in jail without bond. For more than a year and again like sure some of them are people who are accused of egregiously violent crimes and there's overwhelming evidence or camera footage or whatever else i'm not saying that they should um be out but move the cases along these backlogs this what's happening with our system as we just allow people to languish is sick it's sick it, it really is uh closing thought for me Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, like and share us on social media. Please share, especially the story that we just talked about on your social media. People need to know this kind of stuff. We've had people who were found not guilty, three, by the same DA, 
People need to know this stuff. Because like I, I, when I shared the, the Jessica stories from the Georgia Virtue, I said, you the, you know, these are people that spent years in jail. That, you know, people know more about what the president did, uh, had for breakfast than they know what's going on down the street. And these are people that spent years in jail to be found not guilty. And the stuff that, that really needs to be shared and your neighbors need to hear about it. And people need to be outraged in this stuff. So thank you very much for listening. For Eric, for Eric Cumbie, our editor. For Jessica Salaji, the outstanding reporter, editor, and my podcast partner, I'm Dave Roberts. Have a great week.